Hey, hey, this is Chase Masterson, host of the hit Discovery podcast, Disco Nights. If you want to see my special guests and me record a live episode, then don't miss Disco Nights Live at WonderCon on Friday, March 29th, as we talk Star Trek Discovery in front of a live audience. Hope to see you there. If you're a fan of the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life, then you'll love seeing your favorite Inglorious Trexperts hosts live at WonderCon. Join us for a very special guest as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of Star Trek V as we record a live episode of Inglorious Trexperts. You heard right, Star Trek V. We all hide a secret pain. See you there. you enjoyed this week's all new episode of Star Trek Discovery available on CBS All Access. So I've rounded up some of our fantastic guests to give us their reactions to this week's incredible episode. And here is what they had to say. Hey, this is Jeff Bond. I'm uh, editor of Geek Magazine, and I'm here to talk about the Star Trek Discovery episode, The Red Angel. Uh, As the title implies, we finally get to the reveal of the second season's big mystery here, and if you're one of the people who was frustrated by the show's endless delays of getting to Spock, I can only imagine how you've been feeling about revealing the identity of the Red Angel. Everyone was freaking out early in the season over the idea that the Red Angel might actually be an angel, because you apparently can't have any religion on Star Trek, even though Star Trek has had ships, chapels, planets with alternate Jesuses, and even an entire series, Deep Space Nine, centered around a planet's religious myths. But not to worry, the Red Angel is just a high-tech time traveler. And everyone's been theorizing about whether the being is a future Spock from the J.J. Abrams films here to fix the timeline. Yes, some people really believe that uh, to reveal that it might be Burnham. Um, At the beginning of this episode, we seemingly get that reveal almost in a throwaway line that, yes, the Red Angel is Burnham, and after that, the waters get muddied quite a bit. We get a whole chunk of mystery backstory from the Section 31 guy about Burnham's parents being involved in a plot to steal time travel technology from the Klingons, which is a pretty big giveaway. Although, to be fair, there's so much other stuff going on in this episode that if you're mildly distracted, you might still be surprised by the end of the episode. Basically, this is a character-based story on one hand and a time travel story on the other. As character-based episodes go, it's one of the better ones. We've watched Ethan Peck's Spock evolve from someone who's so spaced out and bitter that he's basically unrecognizable to someone who seems more and more like the Spock we know. He's still not Nimoy Spock, but he's getting closer and closer, and here he has a nice long scene with Burnham that's very well written and works out a lot of their character issues. It's probably still too much to ask that their whole relationship be resolved in even a whole season of this show, but I think they managed to tackle it fairly well given the huge challenge involved. There are also some nice moments for Saru, Stamets, Culber, and other characters. The time travel plot is trickier. The whole point of the story here is that if the angel is Burnham and it shows up whenever Burnham is in danger, Burnham's future self must arrive to save her life in order to avoid the grandfather paradox of her never existing. There's a crazy idea here to strap Burnham to a chair on a planet with a deadly atmosphere and wait for the angel to arrive. 
And what's amazing about the episode is that the suspense works in spite of itself. And I particularly love how Spock becomes the one to force everyone at phaser point to complete the plan, even when it seems certain Burnham is going to die. But there's not a lot of thought put into the ramifications, like if Burnham knows all about the plan herself, how will that affect her future self? As it happens, that point is moved because, spoiler alert, the Red Angel isn't Burnham. The reveal of who it is is well executed, except for the giant out-of-nowhere hints dropped in dialogue earlier in the episode. But I'm interested to see how it all shakes out next week. Hi, this is Lisa Klink with my thoughts on Season 2, Episode 10, The Red Angel. First of all, their plan to trap the angel did not make any bloody sense. I mean, if they really thought that future Burnham was the Red Angel then future Burnham would remember what present Burnham was doing, for example, setting a trap for her. So she would not show up because she would know that present Michael lived through this and was not really in danger, and the whole time travel thing just makes it impossible. However, the fact that it turned out to be her mom was even worse. I I think that's pretty awful, (laughs) quite honestly. Uh, First of all, just to have it be, again, so coincidental. I mean, they kind of set it up that they were working on the thing, but I did not like it being her mom. It makes, again, it makes the universe really tiny and it makes me just want to grab the mom and shake her. And I want Michael to grab her mom and shake her and say, why did you let me think I, you were dead this whole time? I mean, that was pretty traumatic and mom had better have a really, really good reason to have put her daughter through that. I also have a little trouble with the red angel sending us these cryptic messages why be cryptic? If I have a suit that can go anywhere in time and space, and I know that the universe is going to end or that all sentient life is going to end, I'm just going to pop up in Starfleet headquarters say, hi, I'm from the future. This is what's going on. You'd better stop it. And even with the individual planets, just pop up on the bridge of discovery and say, here's what's going on. This is what you need to do. I mean, in the Star Trek universe, time travel is not impossible to imagine. And so they would have no reason to doubt that this person really was from the future. So I'm not sure what is with all the cryptic signals and the red signs and all that kind of thing. That just seems, again, there needs to be a really, really good explanation for why the red angel did not just pop up and say, here's what's going on. All that being said, if this plan had made any sense, it would have been a good situation to put Burnham in, to risk her life and the certainty of extreme pain and suffering for this plan to work and to really depend on her crewmates and ironically kind of depending on Spock to stop them, which was an, a weirdly loving or loyal thing for him to do because he knew that she would want him to. Uh, so that was actually kind of a nice moment for him. And it was a nice moment for Burnham to, to feel obvious terror at this and to go ahead and do it anyway. I thought that was a, a good situation for our hero. Those are my thoughts on the episode. I am not sure if I'm looking forward to next week, unless it gives me really good explanations for a lot of baffling things. Hey everyone, it's Alexandra August here, and here are my thoughts on Star Trek Discovery episode 210, The Red Angel. Come right out at the top here and say I did not care for this one. Um... There are elements of it I really enjoyed. The acting remains superb. I loved Sonequa's scenes with Leland, and I loved her scenes with Spock to a degree, but at the end of the day, everything, like, at the end of the day, this episode represented everything I feel like 
that disco doesn't have going for it. It was a really overburdened narrative. It paid attention to so many different storylines, and then it ended with this very strange deus ex machina twist that hasn't been grounded in anything that we've seen before. So it didn't feel exciting. It didn't feel like a wonderful surprise. It just felt like a retcon, which I would lay dollars to donuts. It was. I don't think that there is anyone who could make me believe that initially when conceiving Michael Burnham's character, that her parents would have been part of Section 31 was on the original drawing board. It really feels like this was a late in the game last minute pass to make sure that people wouldn't possibly guess who the Red Angel was when there's only a small cast of characters that it could have been. So as much as I'm excited to have Sonia Stone and AKA Kima Greggs from The Wire join the Star Trek family, this just felt really, really cheap. Mostly because we spent the entire season with working on Michael Burnham's relationships with her foster family, with Sarek, with Amanda, with Spock. We have spent 10 episodes on these characters. And now in the last quarter of the seasons with only four episodes to go, her mom comes back. I've, I don't know what their plans are with this character. I don't know what their plans are to do with her, but that just felt like it should have deserved its own season, much less its own five minutes of this episode. Um, elsewhere, um, I continue to be kind of confused about what exactly is happening with the AI and the Red Angel and the progression of events there and what this malevolent AI's actual motives are. We understand that it's, you know, has it, you understand that it wants to wipe out all sentient or at least all organic life in the galaxy and will do so at some point in the future, which is why the Red Angel is returning to the past in order to thwart it. But this is the main conflict of season two and the fact that it's, barely broadly sketched out, the fact that the main villain is someone we can't even name is really causing a lot of imbalance in this story and just making me extremely frustrated with sort of where to put my attention. Um, it's hard to, I guess at the end of the day, it's just hard to invest in a conflict with an enemy when it's so hard to follow what exactly is happening. We're jumping around. There's no clarity regarding um, it's time travel, how it's able to affect events in the past. Was it just because it managed to infect Arium and then she managed to send off a bunch of files before they caught her? Um, I still am not even clear if Leland is dead at the end of this. He just got poked in the eye and then his voice is mimicked. So now we know that Section 31 is controlling, well, now we know that the AI is controlling a Section 31 ship and two of the other operatives are away. Tyler's on Discovery and Giorgio is down on the planet. So that presents a future conflict. But this is so poorly defined that it feels confusing rather than exciting from my perspective. Uh, elsewhere, um, another example of just the show biting off so much in one season that nothing feels like it's getting the proper amount of attention. Uh, after one confrontation with Tyler and one short session with Admiral Cornwell, Culber seems to now be ready and willing to at least rekindle a friendship with Stamets or want to talk to him, which worries me because I don't want this entire PTSD storyline to be about Culber reuniting with his husband. I think that undermines the really beautiful work Wilson Cruz is doing, despite how much I like them as a couple and despite how much I want to explore that further. I wish they would drag it out a little bit longer. And it feels pretty, t I feel like we're going to get them as a happy couple again by the end of the season. And that's kind of frustrating. It's sort of on its own version of the Trek reset button. Um, 
I feel like I'm also in the minority when I did not care for the humor in Giorgio's interaction with Culber and Stamets when they're in engineering. I kind of liked her messing around with Stamets, but then when it devolved into that cheap gay humor, he's gay and her calling him poppy, it just felt not at the level of, not that like those jokes are not funny and like that kind of humor isn't, or that kind of scene wasn't a little bit fun to have in a Star Trek setting. It just felt like they were really punching down with the dialogue and it was annoying and felt really out of place. Um, yeah, and Georgie's character alone is a little bit frustrating to me at this point. She's either really malevolent and devious because she was literally the emperor of the mirror universe of the Terran Empire in the mirror universe. And yet now she seems genuinely concerned and genuinely has genuine feeling for Michael, which I can understand that being an echo from the Michael she knew in her universe. And I can even understand her developing familial feelings for Michael in this universe, but it doesn't feel like at this point they would manifest in her insistence at the point of a gun that, or her insistence that Spock let her, that her insistence that Spock keep Burnham alive and her absolute terror that Burnham was going to die. It just feels like George, the Giorgio character is who they want her to be whenever it serves the narrative. And she hasn't really been grounded in anything real. She's just a little bit too changeable, um, a little bit too ephemeral, which is not to say I don't love Michelle Yeoh. I love all of the acting on the show. And I really like a lot of the pieces that we've been getting, even in this episode. But this just... I don't know. This episode felt overburdened, poorly executed, and then ended everything with a cheap twist that made me throw up my hands. So I'm looking forward to next week. I'm actually looking forward to the resolution of this just because I feel like we will get all this information that I've been, that I'm sort of demanding, but I don't know. Everything just feels a little bit, a little bit cheap, but I don't know. Here's hoping next week is better. Hello again, everyone. It's J.D. Voigt bringing you yet another moment of disco science. And we're going to start with the DeLorean of this series, or rather the Mr. Fusion powering the flux capacitor of this series, the Time Crystal. It's not technobabble, or even worse, pseudoscience. Time crystals are a real thing in physics, but it doesn't mean time itself is crystallized. Wait, let me step back. So when you think of crystals, you probably think of gemstones or other pretty minerals. But really, to be a crystal, you just have to have a unit that repeats in the same pattern over and over as you build it up. All of the crystals you're familiar with, and the ones you're not, and the ones you didn't realize were crystals, like ice cubes, are all examples of space crystals. The pattern repeats in three-dimensional space. So time crystals, as the name implies, must have a repeating non-random pattern through time. One way that this can happen is by the atoms as nuclei or electrons constantly alternating this property that they have that physicists annoyingly call spin. They're not really spinning. But to get those spins flip-flopping, you've got to trigger it somehow, like with pulses of radio or microwaves. Yes, laser-powered time crystals sounds fake. It is not. Time crystals were first proposed back in 2012, and in the past couple of years, researchers have found or created time crystals in several compounds, including one monoammonium phosphate, which is, get this, a major ingredient in many fertilizers. You can also find it in those crystal growing kits that you can buy for the science-minded child in your life. Time crystals are one of many exotic phases of matter beyond your standard solid, liquid, gas, and plasma. There are a lot of weeds that I am definitely not going to cover here, 
both because it would take way too long and because this observational astrophysicist doesn't quite have the capability of wrapping her head around it yet. But there is one thing I can definitively say. You can't extract energy from them, because the atoms involved are all sitting at the lowest possible energy state in order for the whole time crystal periodicity thing to work. As for possible applications, the main one is with helping quantum computers store information. But a power source? No. Sorry, time machines. Let us turn now to ESOF 4, a planet with an uninhabitable atmosphere that you can survive in for only two minutes. Lucky for Burnham, that's not an exact number, as long as your mother swoops in and shoots a bright red beam at your chest. We're told the atmosphere is made up of carbon monoxide, though there's bound to be other molecules as well. We've all probably heard of carbon monoxide poisoning, and many of us have carbon monoxide detectors in our homes, because it's a colorless, odorless gas, so you don't know when you're being exposed to it. It's bad for us because it binds to the oxygen-carrying compounds in our blood, and basically prevents our red blood cells from getting oxygen to the places your body needs it. The more CO in the air, the less oxygen you can use. In an oxygenless atmosphere, which ESOF 4 presumably is, it's basically not doing any extra harm because you wouldn't be getting any oxygen to your tissues either way. Well, it can also do damage to your heart and nervous system, including brain damage, but if you're going to be dead in two minutes, that doesn't really matter. And yes, that time limit is accurate. Oh, and speaking of time, if the concentration of CO is super high, you're only going to get a few breaths in before you lose consciousness. Burnham wouldn't have been writhing around in her chair in agony, nor have been able to tell Spock not to save her. Acute carbon monoxide poisoning can sometimes cause seizures, but Burnham's physical response to ESOF-4's atmosphere is almost certainly entirely in response to the so-called perchlorate dust that rains down on her. Perchlorates are real chemical compounds. They all have a group of atoms consisting of a chlorine surrounded by four oxygens, and then the group is bonded to something else, like a sodium or ammonium. And in sufficient quantity, they can be nasty, but it requires the perchlorate getting inside of you, either through ingestion or breathing, where it's then taken up into your bloodstream. The biggest problem we've seen in terms of perchlorates is that they get stuck in your thyroid and prevent it from taking up iodine, which is needed to make a bunch of hormones that your body needs. They can cause skin irritation, but that's not the same thing as outright burns. No, for that, you need an acid, perchloric acid, which is used to make ammonium perchlorate a common ingredient in rocket fuel. Perchloric acid, which can, for the record, exist as a solid, is classified as a super acid. It's stronger than sulfuric acid, though acid strength just refers to how readily the molecule's hydrogen atom pops off to go react with stuff. Still, it can react super violently when it comes into contact with organic matter. Yes, that does mean explosions. Tiny explosions on your face. Happy nightmares, everyone. Until next time. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, Alexandra, and Lisa. Really always a pleasure to have you and your voices here on this show. And thanks to you guys. Thank you, our audience, for joining us for Disco Nights. And uh, if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, including 4.30 Movie every Friday and Inglorious Trexperts, the podcast about all things Trek with co-hosts Mark Altman and Darren Doctorman. It's available every Saturday evening at 17.01 hours. That's not 17.02, by the way. 17.01, wherever you listen to podcasts. A very special thanks to Bill Ritter, our engineer, and everybody here at Electric Surge. And uh, we really appreciate you making the show possible. 
Join us next Sunday and every Sunday for an all-new disco party to make sure you bring your disco shoes. This is Chase Masterson saying disco lives, and I'll see you next week. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.